This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Bissam Saad and Patty Elizabeth Montet, who both just increased their Patreon pledges, and to Valerie Vanette, who just made a one-time contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 438 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is C. Robert Cargill. He's the author of novels such as Dreams and Shadows and Sea of Rust, and he also co-wrote the movies Sinister and Doctor Strange. He was also a film critic for Ain't It Cool News under the name Massa Worm. And we'll be speaking with him today about his recent book, We Are Where the Nightmares Go, and other stories. And now here's our interview with C. Robert Cargill. All right, so we're here with C. Robert Cargill. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Okay, so I just read your collection, We Are Where the Nightmares Go, and other stories. So how'd this book come about? Uh, well, you know, it's uh, – I. I love writing, uh, and I write constantly. And if I go too long without writing something, uh, you know, usually, usually like a week or two without having a project, I start getting antsy. I start getting frustrated. Um, I just have to be working on something. And so what, what, what I would often do in between projects, uh, uh, several years back while waiting for, you know, while Scott was editing something or while I was waiting on a contract to come through or something, I would just start writing short stories. Uh, you know, something I really enjoyed when I was much younger that I hadn't had time really to do, uh, uh, you know, again, as a working adult, I was a film critic for 10 years and that's constant, you know, that was a constant churning of writing. That's, that was a 60 to 80 hour a week job, uh, one you wouldn't think is, but is. And so it was, uh, it was really cool to sit down and start writing some, some short stories and such. And then. Uh, when, uh, my publisher came to me, uh, with a, uh, to re up my book deal, uh, they said, what do you want to write? You know, what are you, what are you working on? What would you like to do? And I had, uh, another sequel to a series that I'd worked on. And I had this book, Sea of Rust that I wanted to write. And I was like, I would really like to do a short story collection. And they were like, do you have stuff? And I was like, yeah. And they wanted to see some of it. And I shared some of it. And they're like, oh, this is great. Yeah. Fill this out and, uh, come up with a couple more and, and we'll put them together as a collection. And so I wrote several more to fill out the, the collection. And, uh, and that's just how it came to be. It's a mix of stuff that I just wrote for fun for myself and, uh, things that, uh, I ended up, uh, writing for the book. Yeah, so I mean, in the there's sort of copyright acknowledgments for two of the stories, um, indicating that they had been published previously. But are all the other stories in here uh, original to this book? Yes, yeah. The, the two other bo- uh, short stories, one uh, we wrote for the Blumhouse Book of Nightmares. Uh, Scott and I wrote that, uh, and then there was another one where I was invited to be in this really great collection um, called Midi and Unmade. Uh, which was a bunch of stories set in uh, Clive Barker's Cabal universe, which a lot of people know as Nightbreed. Uh, and it's after the fall of the city uh, at the end of uh, of Cabal. And we were invited to write our own monsters and uh, 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 if we wanted or use monsters from the universe and just write 
create a part of that universe and that it would be considered, you know, canon. And, uh, and I thought that was awesome. And I was like, yes, absolutely. So I wrote those two pieces when I was invited to write them. Uh, but everything else here had never been published until this book. Had you been submitting stories to, to magazines and anthologies and stuff? No, no, not at all. Like, uh, the two anthologies I was part of, they reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to be a part of them. Uh, I hadn't been submitting. It was just something that, uh, uh, I, wasn't really on my radar as something I very much wanted to do, you know, it, when I was much younger. Uh, but then kind of the short story market had faded away for a while. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of, uh, a, a lot of drive to go and do that. And, uh, these, I was literally just writing these mostly for me, you know, stuff I kept on my hard drive, stuff I shared with my friends. Uh, it was just, uh, uh, Hey, I have a new story. Uh, and you know, several of my friends would be like, oh, I want to read it. <laughs> uh, and that was, that's what it was meant for. It was just, you know, it was off, it, uh, you know, it, it's, and as you could tell reading the book, you know, the, a lot of these stories are all over the map. There's no one given theme to the book or anything like that, where it's, it's like, Oh, these are all stories about this type of thing. No, they're just all horror stories, but horror in different ways, because they're just ideas that I had that I was like, Oh, you know, this can't be a movie. But this could be a cool story, um, and uh, and so that's that's just how they evolved. Yeah. So in the acknowledgments, you say uh, you say thank you to Diana Gill, Simon Spanton, Rachel Winterbottom, and Jen Brell for fighting for me and this book. What is that? What was that fighting involved? Oh, those are um, those are all my editors. Uh, the the uh, first two editors, uh, Diana and Simon, uh, they both left their respective uh, publishers uh, and and pursued other uh, portions of their career. And then Rachel and Jen took over. And uh, uh, really, what it is is uh, fighting to get the book uh, made the way it was. Uh, you know, short story collections aren't incredibly popular right now, uh, and that was something that there was a little pushback on. Um, you know, from some folks where they're like, yeah, you know, they, they just don't sell as well and they're not as popular. Uh, but the, my editors all were like, Hey, we've read some of these stories. These are great. Yeah. This needs to be a book and, and we would be proud to, to make this book. And so they all, they all did their own part of making sure this book, uh, got across the finish line. Yeah. I mean, left to my own devices, I would much rather read a short story collection than a novel. Um, so that's mostly what I read, you know, just for fun. Um, oh, right on. So it, uh, it kind of, yeah. It, and I'm certainly aware that, you know, they don't they're not as popular, which I think is too bad. I think if more people gave them a chance, they would, uh, you know, they would be just as popular as novels. I concur. Yeah, no, no. I, lo I love short story collections. My house is full of them. Uh, you know, there's so many writers that I love that I want to sit down and read something of theirs. But, you know, it's like a Saturday afternoon. You got a free hour or two. Um, you, you, it's not really time to sit down and read a novel and reading a novel is, Hey, this is what I'm doing. And often if you're reading a novel, you feel like you have to finish that novel before you can pick something else up. But a short story collection is something you can pull off the shelf and go, I'm going to read a little Harlan Ellison today yeah. and read a couple Harlan Ellison stories. And it's like, Oh, he's so good. And then you can, you've got complete stories and then you move on. And I, I wanted to have something like that. I wanted to have something that people who enjoyed my writing could pull off the shelf and, you know, read for half an hour. And, and so here it is. <laughs> well, yeah. And I also find for interviewing authors, a lot of times it's really good to read a short story collection because often the stories have been written over, you know, 10 or 20 years or something. You really get a sense of the, the scope of their career and what their different interests are and how they've developed over time and stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, this is, these are the stories that are in here actually go over 20 years. There's one story in here that I specifically put in here because I wrote it back in my, early twenties. Um, and you know, just was one of those things I wrote friends liked it. Uh, and, 
I ended up uh, having a young man uh, reach out to me years ago and ask me if I would write his thesis film. Uh, he was in film school. And uh, uh, and I said, well, I can't write your 45-minute one, but I do have a week and a half off. I could write your, your five, ten-minute short. Uh, and then I realized, oh, I have this great story that I've always loved that I could turn into a short film. And so uh, uh, so I included that story in there. And you could see the quality of the writing <laughs> of me 20 years ago versus the quality of the writing today. In fact, I even have I preface that in the in the book uh, because it's it's one of those things where it's like you could see, oh, this was the gestation of what Cargill would become as a writer. I can see Cargill in here, but he doesn't have the skill set that he has now. And and I thought that was an interesting thing to include for that reason. So how did that film student kind of learn about you in the first place? Like what stage of your career were you at at that time? Uh, this was uh, I had made Sinister. Um, then Scott and I were working on other projects. So I have a very weird career, um, uh, in that I've been, I've had a public career for just about 20 years now. Like I'm two months shy of 20 years of the first time I was published as a film critic. And I spent 10 years as a film critic in the golden age of the internet. So there were only about five major film sites, uh, uh, at the time, and I was writing for one of them. Uh, and so if you were reading reviews online, if you were reading movie news online, you were reading me at some point. And <laughs> so I uh, that helped me quite a bit because when I, when I realized what was happening to the internet and realized what was happening to uh, those types of websites, I realized that there probably wasn't going to be a career for me in five years and uh, that it was going to be a, you know, um, a kind of churn and burn uh, uh uh, uh, kind of industry where, you know, you'd have a lot of young people out of college who are willing to write for very little money doing that. And that once you had gotten enough prestige, you either got one of the few bigger jobs working at like Vanity Fair or, you know, Hollywood Reporter, uh, uh, things like that. And that everyone else would just kind of be, you know, making $25 an article. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to get one of those top jobs. It just, probably isn't in the cards. So I should, uh, I should work on something else. And so I started writing my first book. Uh, and that led to my, um, me getting uh, a film career. And there's a whole big long story with that. But essentially once I got into that career, um, every time I took a meeting, people knew who I was. Cause they were like, you know, we read it in cool news every day and I've been reading it for 15 years. So yeah, I know who you are. Uh, so that was a very weird thing where I wasn't, you know, any sort of household name, but in the industries that I was going into, everybody knew me. And so, uh, so, uh, I have a, I have certain followings that have been following me for upwards of 20 years, depending on where they started following me, whether it be at ain't a cool news or whether it be at a site I co-founded with some friends, spill.com. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, I, I, I then moved on and started making movies. And so it was one of those things that I wasn't just a first time filmmaker, you know, a first time screenwriter. I was this guy who people had known for 10 years who had also now made a movie and put out a book. And so that was the point at which, um, uh, uh Nikhil came to me and asked me if I would work on this thing. And I was like, yeah, sure. And the thing was, is we were both Redditors and I was, I was very public on, on Reddit. And so, uh, I had done some Q and A's there, but had also been a Redditor for quite some time. So he just messaged me out of the blue. 
uh, on Reddit and said, Hey, do you want to do this thing? And I was like, you know what? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I would love to. So I wrote that script for him and he hustled like no one else I have ever seen hustle. Like he took it to, uh, uh, to other professional filmmakers, you know, people working in digital effects and, and, uh, cinematographers and, and said, Hey, I'm making my student film. Do you want to work? A lot of people said no, but a lot of people said yes. And then he made this $5,000 student film that just looks great. And it's just really cool. And I'm really proud to have my name on it. And uh, it got him meetings and he's been, you know, working in the industry. And sure enough, now uh, I have a script that I have him attached to, to direct. And, uh, and hopefully we'll get to make that film someday soon. Yeah, that's really cool. Okay. So let me just, um, from my research, um, uh, describe the trajectory of your career as I've put it together. And you can tell me if this is correct. But so um, Ain't It Cool News became really popular and you were like on the uh, message boards and the, and one of the editors said, has anyone seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? And you said, well, I've seen it. And so they had you review it and that got a lot of traffic. And so you became a regular there. And then Scott Derrickson, who's now your writing partner, had seen some of your reviews and he just reached out to you at some point and said, hey, you want to hang out sometime or talk? And you mentioned that you had a book that you've been working on and he asked to see it. And then he's like, oh, this is really good. Do you want to be my writing partner? I might be missing some steps in there. But um, that, that, is, that, is that pretty much? Is that uh, yeah, yeah. Essentially, he had read, uh, uh, Scott had read my book and um, uh, had given me notes on it and wanted to help me get it published. Uh, and then we ran into each other in Vegas. And, uh, uh, you know, I was on my first trip to Vegas and I'm tweeting about it and tweeting about my Vegas adventures. And he you know, just popped up on Twitter and was like, oh, hey, dude, I'm in Vegas, too. Let's get together and have a drink. And I was like, yeah. And so we went out to the Mandalay Bay and had a couple drinks. And he was in the midst of there were two companies that were bringing a new model uh, to the uh, to the table. And the model was uh, we give you a million dollars if you give us a good idea and then you get final cut and you get to make your movie. Uh, and one of those producers was Roy Lee and the other was Jason Blum. And so he worked up this idea that he wanted to pitch. Uh, and wanted my professional opinion. And so he uh, was like, hey, will you give me my, your professional opinion on this? I was like, yeah, sure. And so I gave him some notes. Uh, and then I was like, hey, you know, I've had this movie rattling around in my head for a long time. Uh, can I pitch it to you? And he was like, all right, everybody pitches me once. Here's your one time pitch me. And I pitched him sinister. And he was just like, holy fuck, I want to make that movie. <laughs> and he was just he, he was he just he instantly flipped for it. And a week and a half later we were pitching it in Jason Blum's office, but uh, he had told me, he was like, look, nor ordinarily I would uh, um, ordinarily I'd pay $50,000 for the idea. And then I would go and write the movie with my writing partner. But me and my writing partner just broke up. Uh, I know you're a good writer. You want to write this with me and we'll see if this works out. And I said, yeah, sure. And so two weeks into writing, he just called me up and he said, dude, I've never had a writing experience like this. Will you just be my writing partner? And I was like, yeah. And that was, uh, that was uh, 10 years ago this January and we've been together ever since and have just recently started up a production company and, uh, uh, and it's going very well. Yeah. That's super cool. And so then, yeah, so you, you've written a bunch of scripts together, but then as we mentioned, you also actually, I'm not sure if we mentioned or not, but you, um, the story of clean white room, uh, that's in this book you wrote with, uh, mm -hmm. with Scott. So what is it like, was it any different writing a piece of fiction, like prose fiction versus a screenplay, um, as a collaboration? Yeah, it was very different um, because, uh, you know, uh, prose is is radically different from uh, from screenwriting. Screenwriting is very exact. There's very there's methodology to it. Um, 
you can get, uh, you know, purple with your prose in, in a script. You can get, you know, uh, very literary at times if you like, uh, but you don't have to. And you can have sections of the script be literary and other sections just be very cut and dry. He walks across the room. He, he you know, he, he clutches his bat and moves down the hallway. You can have very sim- uh, simple prose in there uh, and then have scenes where you, you know, where you write something a little more literary and uh, you know, to paint a picture in the mind of the people reading the script. Cause you know, as we, you know, me and Scott have said many times, you know, a, a script isn't a film. It's, it's a sales document. You know uh, there is an art form to writing scripts and scripts can be art, but what you're writing for is to convince somebody to give you money to turn that into a film. You know, you're, you never intend the script to be the thing that people sit down and, and uh, take that, that in, but sometimes you want to write very colorfully in order to, you know, uh, to really kind of, uh, get the, the readers really into it, to see the scene, to understand the character, because there's a lot of things you're missing out on in a script. You're missing performance. You're missing cinematography. You are just giving them the bare bones of the story and hoping that they see it. And so sometimes you can write that way, but in a piece of prose, you need that prose to remain pretty steady the whole way through. You need to have a voice. Uh, and if it changes up radically from paragraph to paragraph, uh, there's, uh, you can create a disjointed piece of art that really will mess with the audience. And so you really do kind of have to find a homogeneity in there between your two voices. And so Scott and I were able to do that. And we're both very proud of this, uh, of the story, but it's one of those things that it's just harder to do uh, for me than it is to write a script with someone else. And so I find it to be a very kind of different uh, experience. Well, yeah, I mean, when you're talking about the the literary style and everything, I mean, I'm usually kind of indifferent to similes and things like that in prose style, but I really liked some of the similes in this story. So I actually wrote down some of them. So like, uh, the key crowds into the lock like a drunk in a packed subway car, bumping and scraping against every tumbler along the way, trying to settle in, find its place. And also, uh, he clings to his memories like a group of friends he can't quite stand anymore, but knows deep down he can't live without. Do you remember uh, writing those? Or oh yeah, yeah, no, no. I, I actually particularly, I, I've I've always been fond of the 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 key in the lock. Like that mm-hmm. was uh, that's what it, it tickles me that 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 struck you yeah. Uh, because I've always liked that piece. You're, you're the first person that's ever mentioned that line to me. And I was actually really proud of writing that <laughs> line. Cause I thought that was a, I thought that was a neat, uh, uh, a neat image. And uh, uh, yeah, no, I remember those very well. Um, man, I haven't, I haven't thought about writing that story in a long time. Cause that was quite some time ago. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, yeah. I guess I'm not even sure how, how long ago did you write it? I want to say that was written in 2013 because uh, Sinister had done very well and Blumhouse was moving into trying their hands at books and uh, were bringing in a bunch of the people who uh, had made movies for them. And so uh, that was um, uh, that that was just something they reached out and said, would you like to do this? And we were like. Yeah, that would be cool. And they're like, there's no, there's no real money in it. And we're like, oh, we know. (laughs) I'm in, I'm in publishing. I know this is Hollywood money and publishing money are two very different things. So, um, I was like, yeah, no, I would do this just to do it. And so it was a, it was a great time writing that with Scott. Uh, like I said, it was, you know, it's, it's kind of complicated to get your voices to mesh like that. Uh, but, uh, but the experience is great. I, I always love working with Scott. He's, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's, we, we, uh, we refer to 
we refer to our partnership and, and the way, you know, writing partnerships should work and creative partnerships should work is they work like a marriage. And you have to learn to deal with a person the same way you have to learn to deal with a person in a marriage. And you have to know how to compensate for their weaknesses, you know, accept their flaws and and love them, uh, you know, unconditionally. And, and that's very much me and Scott's relationship. And uh, so it's always a pleasure to create something with him and then be able to go, we made this. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that was a, that was a really interesting and wonderful experience. I guess now that I think about it, you know, I interviewed Jason Blum when that anthology came out. So I guess I could have just thought, oh, when did I interview Jason Blum? I wouldn't have actually thought it was seven years ago. Time, time flies. Yeah. Yeah, it does. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I was just talking to Scott yesterday and mentioned the fact that we were coming up on 10 years since the sinister pitch. And he was just like, man. He's like, man, it feels like yesterday and it feels like a decade ago. Like it's one of those weird things that it doesn't feel like it's that long, but we have so much history behind us. So of course it has to be that long. Yeah. Well, so how about then the, the Nightbreed anthology? Like how did that um, invitation come about? Oh, that was literally uh, Del Howenson, uh, who runs Dark Delicacies in L.A. Uh, if you are any sort of a horror fan and you find yourself in L.A., you got to visit Dark Delicacies. It is it's it's. Kind of, you know, geek literary mecca. He, it's a store that's literally just horror. And so it's filled with horror novels from, you know, the classics all the way up to, you know, a lot of indie folks that you don't find elsewhere. Uh, walls of DVDs of just horror films, lots of horror ephemera. Uh, and he, uh, every once in a while, Dark Delicacies puts together anthologies. Uh, and they do anthologies on different things. And because Dell has such a great, relationship with pretty much everyone in the horror community. You know, he always has signings there. He invites people to, to events. Um, and he's just a great guy. And, uh, he and his wife are just great people. And you, uh, uh, it's, it's got a very kind of family vibe there. And so once you've been there, he feels free to reach out and go, Hey, we're doing an anthology on a thing. You want to write something? And, you know, a lot of people are like, yeah, I do. And then you <laughs> see the names that end up in that anthology and you're like, wow, I, I got to write alongside all of these folks. This is amazing because uh, he really does curate a wonderful selection of voices. Um, and the great thing about that store is you can walk in and say, hey, I'm looking for something like this. And he'll just walk over to the shelf and be like, oh, you're looking for this writer and this writer. And oh, here's this new woman writing that nobody knows about. And you need to read her stuff. And we'll give you an armload of books that are exactly what you're looking for. And so he really, really really knows his stuff. So when they put together anthologies, they really do know what kind of writers belong in those anthologies. Yeah. You know, when I, uh, when I lived in LA, I went to one reading, I think at dark delicacies and funnily enough, it was a Clive Barker reading that I went to, but, um, yeah. So were you a big, was Clive Barker a big influence on you or growing up or anything? Oh yeah. Well, yeah, no, I'm, uh, 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 I'm a Gen Xer, and if you were into horror in the 80s, there were two people you were reading religiously, and that was Stephen King and Clive Barker. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and maybe you pepper in a little Dean Koontz every once in a while. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so, uh, uh, he, he did a couple collections of short stories, and one of them that included Cabal, and I think it was called Cabal and Other Stories. Um, that was really influential with me because uh, Cabal in particular took a whole bunch of things I loved and showed me that they could go together uh, because Cabal is a fantasy story. You know, Nightbreed is a fantasy film. It's dark fantasy. 
but it's horror. It's monster movies. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's full of monsters, including human monsters. And it was the first time I read it when I was 13 and I'll never forget when I read it. I read it, uh, when we were moving from, uh, uh, I lived in Tucson, Arizona and we moved to San Antonio. Uh, and, uh, I read it that entire collection on the road trip, uh, from Tucson to, to San Antonio, uh, which is just a big, long, boring stretch of I-10 is all it is. You take I-10 out of Tucson, you drive I-10 into San Antonio, and it was just a boring drive. But I was just enamored with this book, and it just really spoke to me and said, horror can be this. And as a result of that, I tried my hand at my first novel uh, when I was 14 years old. And I got 30 pages in. I never finished. It was terrible. <laughs> but it But it was one of those things where I was like, oh, hey, I could do this. And and that was it was directly inspired uh, uh, by Cabal. So this story, um, I'm the night you never speak of. To what extent, if any, were you trying to make it sound like a Clive Barker story? Uh, well, I mean, the thing is, is one of the identifying things of Clive Barker in particular is his relationship with sex in his stories. Uh, Cabal is a very, very sexual story. Um, there's, uh, you know, there, there's just a lot of, uh, sex and sexual identity in his books. Uh, that is part of what makes them fascinating. And I wanted to create a monster that fed upon, uh, people's shame. Cause that's one of the things I find really interesting about Bar- uh, Barker's work is Barker has no shame <laughs> for who he is. He does not experience that at all. He is proudly who he is and proudly that in his work. And I thought it would be a neat mirror to write a story about this monster that feeds upon people's shame of what they did, that it's not the evil acts themselves that it feeds on. It feeds on people feeling bad about them and people feeling uh, embarrassed by them and not embracing who they are. Uh, and that this this monster brings out the worst in you that you then feel terrible about. And and that's how he feeds. And and I found that to be an interesting kind of, um, you know, just a, a, a quiet examination of of uh, of Barker's work. Uh, while playing around in his universe. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting approach to that sort of theme anthology that it's set in his world, but it's a theme that he wouldn't do himself probably. Yeah, yeah. He would not, He would not, at least in, in the work that I've read of his, would not portray uh, the shamefulness of those kind of acts. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, yeah, that was... That was that was my Catholic upbringing showing through. <laughs> um, well, so you mentioned monsters, and I think actually probably my favorite story in here uh, is Hell Creek. It's about it's told from the point of view of some dinosaurs, and uh, when the meteor strikes, you know, sort of destroying the earth, that unleashes a plague of zombie dinosaurs. Uh, I just thought it was terrific. Um, do you remember how you first got the idea for that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's when I actually, when I, when I talk about, uh, writing to young writers and the formation of ideas, this is the example I use, uh, because I'd been reading about, uh, uh, online, a, uh, a regular extinction event that we have here on earth that every, uh, um, I want to say it's every 27 million years, I think, uh, is there, for some reason we have a big die off and we don't know what it is. And there's a lot of theories that maybe, you know, it's our sun's orbit in the galaxy brings us close to something that, that, uh, 
you know, bathes us in, in radiation or any number of things. There's so maybe we go through a large period of, you know, a large area of asteroids and we get meteor hits that, that help cause die offs, but nobody really knows what it is. We just know that in the, uh, in the geological record that every 27 million years we see this die off. And so I was thinking about that. And one of those die offs, by the way, is 65 million years ago. We're not due for another one for another 11 million years. So we're good. Uh, but I was thinking about it and I, I was on a walk and I was thinking about it and I was like, well, what if it was a zombie plague? Like what if every 27 million years, zo- you know, we have a zombie plague. That would be crazy. And then I was like, oh, well, what if it was zombies that killed the dinosaurs? Like what if it wasn't just, you know, an asteroid? What if it was a, a dinosaur zombie apocalypse? And I said, you know what? I've never seen. I've never seen a dinosaur zombie apocalypse in fiction. So I'm going to write a dinosaur zombie apocalypse. And then I tried to figure out, well, how do you tell that story? Like, how do you make that interesting? Because that's the tough part. Like, okay, now I've got an idea for, you know, how to kill off the dinosaurs, but where's the story? And so I was like, well, we need to tell it from the point of view of a dinosaur. And uh, we have to make it an interesting dinosaur that would be fit for fighting zombies. And that's where I was like, oh, a triceratops. Triceratops can gore the zombies and gore them through the heads. And now we have an interesting we have an interesting concept of a character within that concept. And then I was like, well, we need that dinosaur to interact with uh, some other creature. And I was like, well, what if that dinosaur pairs up with another great dinosaur for fighting, you know, zombie dinosaurs? And it's like, oh, an Ankylosaurus. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> and so so then I have the this adventure of these two, uh, you know, dinosaurs trying to survive the apocalypse. And, uh, and the real, the real tough part of writing that was how do you write it without any, any language? You know, how do you do it entirely through, um, body language and eyes and not using any, you know, any words, any speaking, because the minute that happens, now you just have a silly, uh, story, you know, it's already like, the thing is, is one of the things with genre is you're allowed to be as ridiculous as you want, but there are certain lines that if you cross, it goes from being interesting and ridiculous to uh to just silly and i was trying to avoid this from being silly i wanted it to be a cool story that was like oh i've never read anything like this before this is weird but i like it and it's fun and it's scary and it does everything that a zombie movie should do but it doesn't go to the point of true absurdity so that you can still kind of retain that immersion and so it was a tricky one to write, but it was also a lot of fun. And ultimately, I'm super proud of that story. So I'm, I'm glad that one's your favorite. Yeah, and I really liked how serious it was. I mean, you sort of would expect it to be like zombie dinosaurs to maybe be kind of goofy, but you play it so straight and it's so you know tense and dramatic, and you really feel for the the characters and everything. And I really liked that um, that approach. But I was wondering. So um, you know, it occurred to me in the in um, George Romero's original um, Night of the Living Dead, that it's a comet that brings the dead back to life. And was mm-hmm. that in your mind at all when thinking about a comet killing the dinosaurs? Oh, 100%. 100%. Like, the thing is, is if you look at the structure of the story, the story is actually the classic zombie movie structure. Uh, it it plays upon um, all of the ba- basic tropes that you're familiar with, and that was intentional. Uh, the idea was, you know this story, you're familiar with the beats of this story, you've just never seen it told this way. And so, yeah, from, you know, uh, Romero's Dead series was, was pivotal in there, you know, ideas from things like Kirkman's Walking Dead, um, you know, even, you know, playing around with trying to, uh, uh, you know, some of the stuff that... Uh, 
uh, Dan O'Bannon came up with, with uh, the return of the living dead series. Um, uh, cause there's, there's a lot of different zombie rules out there. And depending on which series you're talking about, you have completely different rules. We, we have a basic rule set that if you're in a zombie movie, you know, you shoot them in the head. Well, that doesn't always work in every zombie movie. Uh, but that's the, the classic established rule set. So I had to play around with figuring out what my zombie rules were, which meant going through all of the different major series and major ideas in, in zombie storytelling. Uh, and then, uh, figuring out which ones I was going to go with, but yeah, Romero and the comet was absolutely, um, uh, uh, on my mind. Are you a big, uh, dinosaur expert or did you have to do a lot of research on dinosaurs to write the story? Uh, I'm not a big dinosaur expert, but I do. I am a, I'm a big science nerd. I just love one of my favorite things is, is to watch like science YouTube <laughs> and, uh, especially stuff uh, about astrophysics. Um, there's a number of astrophysics channels that I, I just love watching. Uh, and so I know a lot about dinosaurs in terms of, you know, uh, and the average person, but I wouldn't call myself an expert. So it, it was a lot of sitting down and doing, some research on uh, uh, on them. And in, in doing the research is where I found the title of the story, because, uh, in fact, I, I'm, I'm super proud of the title because it's called Hell Creek, which sounds exactly like what you would think a, a a horror movie should sound like. But it's named after the Hell Creek Park. And Hell Creek Park is this swath of land through the Midwest, which is where we find so many dinosaurs. Uh, it's where a bunch of the dinosaurs that died in the extinction event uh, met their end. And so uh, uh, and all of the dinosaurs that appear in this story can be found in the Hell Creek Park. And so I was like, Hell Creek. <laughs> oh, that's perfection. Like, that is exactly what this story needs to be called. So it's kind of a tongue in cheek title. And uh, but based on when I was doing research, because I one of the things I sat down and did is said, OK, so I know a bunch of dinosaurs, but I also know that they dinosaurs that people are familiar with lived at very different times than one another. Like a lot of the dinosaurs that we like, there are breeds of dinosaurs that people would think lived together that actually existed so far apart that we're closer to those dinosaurs than they are to their counterparts uh, in terms of geological time. And so I sat down and said, okay, so this is 65 million years ago. I'm limited to those dinosaurs, which dinosaurs were around and which ones would be fun to make zombie threats. And so I've just very much kind of poured through these, the dinosaurs of the time to go, which ones would be fun? Which ones would be interesting? Uh, and, and not just because we established the zombie T-Rex in there, but it can't just be big lumbering, scary zombies. It's got to be different types of zombies in order to freshen it up. And so that's that's where I really did most of my research was trying to find which ones would be interesting to um, to unleash on our uh, uh, on our protagonists. Yeah, no, it's a terrific story. I really, really highly recommend it. Um, I was also curious in terms of research, you know, one of the pieces, it's called The Soul Thief's Son. And uh, mm -hmm. you say it's uh, it's set a few weeks after your novel, Queen of the Dark Things. And yes. it, um, it very heavily involves sort of Australian Aboriginal magic. And I was just curious, um, you know, like how much of that did you invent for the story and how much of it uh, did you research and stuff like that? Uh, it's a lot of research that that whole series, uh, the Colby Stevens series is very much uh, steeped in research and folklore. Whenever I write one of those books, I spend a few weeks sitting down reading folklore of of, uh, of whatever I'm doing. And especially with Queen of the Dark Things. It was very much I read probably two dozen books on Aboriginal mythology and folklore 
um, and, and lifestyle and uh, a whole host of things. They did a ton of research on that, then ran the research and a bunch of the things by a number of my Australian friends. Uh, and folklore friends. It's, it's very much a lot of what is in that comes from the folklore. So like you're the soul thief son, you know, um, the whole idea of soul stealing straight out of Aboriginal mythology. It's like, like actual believed folklore, uh, in the same way that, you know, um, uh, uh, the, Christians and Catholics especially very much believed in fairies and genies and uh, ideas now of like uh, the paranormal and how that and exorcisms and how that plays in how people very much believe that demons possess people and that they can be exercised. The aboriginals very much believe that uh, magicians that uh, that magic men can steal your soul and take it out and use it for their own purposes and that the body will die without the soul within three days. And so that, that all is very much steeped in, in their actual folklore. And so uh, all of that story, in fact, that story in particular was excised from queen of the dark things. It was originally, it uh, uh, was the, the second and third act of, um, of part of that book and it just didn't work. And we complete, I completely rewrote the book and pulled that out. But I realized a few years later, Oh wait, I know how to make this story work again. I know how to fix it and I can fix this and turn this into uh, another separate Colby story. I realize now where that story went wrong. And so I rewrote that story and took this excised section of a novel and turned it into a novella. That's cool. So how about this thing about um, at one point the character is, uh, you know, they've killed somebody and they're choosing whether to make a sort of a bone knife out of his left leg or his right leg. And we're told Mm -hmm. that the left leg is better for fighting spirits and the right leg bone is better for fighting people. Is that something is that something from research or is that something that you came up with? Oh, yeah. No, that's research. Uh, I try to very much in that series. I try to keep the folklore real like, you know, I uh, it's. There's certain times the only times I invent stuff is when in that series is when um, there is no answer to a thing and I'll make a decision like there is uh, in that series. There's, uh, you know, a genie plays a a, a gin plays a major ca- uh, role, a, a character named Yasher. Um, and there is no actual lore as to how long a genie lives or how they can die, uh, but they do. And so there was nothing there. And so I did invent the whole concept of, uh, you know, genies needing to have their names be remembered. And if they're forgotten, they die making these bottles make sense as punishment. Like they're trapped in the bottles and then they're buried somewhere or hidden to where people forget they exist. And if they don't, you know, uh, once they're forgotten, they fade into nothingness. And so, um, so occasionally I'll create stuff like that, but yeah, the, the, the bone, the bone stuff that came out of my research, uh, that was very much, uh, um, something that they very much believe, uh, something that's mentioned in both those books. Jang is something they very much believe in the magic and energy inherent in the land. In fact, the entire, uh, I had already planned on going into Aboriginal lore and Aboriginal lore is hinted at in the first book and the entire concept of dream stuff that the entire, uh, uh, book series is built around comes from the idea of Aboriginal Jang, which is this magical air, uh, uh, 
energy inherent in all things and inherent in the earth, which is why uh, uh, the Aboriginal culture uh, worships the land and believes they are custodians of the land and that you cannot own land. You can be a custodian of the land and take care of the land and protect it, but you can never own it because the land is the land and the land is this shared history that it is the place we come from and the place we return. Uh, and so, uh, everything you'll find that is, you know, direct in that story comes out of Aboriginal folklore, uh, because I'm, I'm just, I'm fascinated by it. I love it. And I wanted to share it with other people, uh, because it's such, it's such rich, wonderful folklore and an amazing way to look at life. I love the way, uh, the Aboriginal culture, uh, regards the land and, our place in it. And so uh, it was something that I very much wanted to share. So I kept as many details as humanly possible in the story. When you said that you um, you were able to run it by people in Australia and folklorists and stuff, how, how did you know those people that you were able to do that? Uh, again, uh, uh, I've been online for a long time. Uh, and uh, uh, my stuff has been read, you know, when you're on the internet, you're being read all over the world. And so I had a bunch of fans and friends that I developed who are from Australia and some who are in the television community down there and was able to say, Hey, can you, can you track down someone for me? Who's a, uh, 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 an Aboriginal folklore expert who can read through this and give me notes and make sure that I'm not being, that I'm not appropriating anything or misrepresenting anything. And so use those connections to, to get, uh, you know, to get a cursory read on that, uh, to make sure I wasn't stepping on any toes. Uh, and so that's, you know, it was, that's just how I found those folks. And Dr. Thaddeus Ray, PhD, is that, that's a fictional person? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, if, so that story, it comes from, um, uh, uh, like again, it's a series of books and, and Dr. Thaddeus Ray is, uh, this character who's always providing context to a bunch of the things that are happening in the story. But what you find out very early on in the first book is Dr. Thaddeus Ray is actually Colby himself and that Colby is writing these guides to the supernatural world under this assumed identity and that some of the supernatural things know he's doing this, but because of his place in the world, they can't really do anything about it. And so these books that you're reading uh, throughout the story are actually the the esoteric tomes being written by the character that we're also seeing experience these things in his youth. Hmm. That's cool. Um, I had a couple of just random questions about some of these stories. So one of them is, sure. is called Jake and Willie at the end of the world. Um, could you just talk about where that came from and where those characters came from? Yeah, I was bored one <laughs> night and I was, uh, and sitting up and had a couple beers and got this idea of these two hillbillies at the end of the world. Um, you know, like how, how would they deal with, you know, the apocalypse and the idea of, you know, kind of just, uh, porch sitting. And so I've got these two guys sitting in, uh, lawn chairs in, inside their house at the end of the world. And they're just having a conversation about it. And they're both, they're both kind of dumb shit. <laughs> um, but at the same time, there's that country wisdom to them. Like they're not stupid. They're just poorly informed. And, uh, uh, and at the same time, they're also two guys who deeply love one another who are afraid to say how much they love one another. Uh, and they're, you know, they, they want to kind of say it, but they can't say it, uh, while this ambiguous end of the world is coming for them. 
And uh, I just something that popped into my head and I just wrote it as a one act play uh, and, and never had finished it. It was just this half of a one act play that was sitting there. And when I was trying to come up with stuff for this book, I was like, oh, Jake and Willie could be turned into a short story and I could come up with an ending for that. And uh, and that's what I did. I converted that one act play into uh, a short story. Did you do you, I mean, do you know sort of hillbilly people like that or is that just sort of out of your imagination? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm uh, I'm from Texas, uh, you know, I, uh, I was born in Texas and uh, and I'm going to grow old in Texas. I love this place. And I know people out in the sticks. You know, I know I know country folk, I, you know, especially in my youth, I would go out and, you know, you'd have that friend whose family had a trailer out in the hill country somewhere. And you guys would drive, you know, drive out an hour and a half and sit and drink beer in the in the middle of the country and stare at the stars. And a lot of folks, you know, like that around there. And uh, so, yeah, it was kind of it wasn't based on anyone particular, but was based on folks that I've known. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Texas, because actually, you know, my girlfriend and I just moved to Austin, um, you know, in the past oh, right on. in the past year. And unfortunately, because of the whole pandemic, we've sort of been locked in our apartment the whole time. But, um, you know, anyone I talk to. Um, for this podcast, who's who's from Austin? I've been asking them, you know, like what sort of uh, geeky stuff should I look forward to doing um, once I can leave my apartment? So, do you have any uh, people, places, events, or anything I should check out? Absolutely. Um, let me get, let me give y'all the list <laughs> of what to do when you are in Austin. Uh, first things first, you got to see movies at the Alamo Draft House. Um, particularly, the best thing the best thing in the world is you know seeing the Thursday night. Uh, 10 30 to 11 30 p.m. show of a big movie coming out you know buy your tickets in advance go see it with a, a, a loud rowdy crowd that it's also respectful of the films they're just loud and rowdy and that they're gonna react like watching Endgame for the first time in a draft house like hearing you know the audience like Avengers assemble and hearing the audience be like was just <laughs> it was a hell of a thing also they're very strict about people talking during the movie so you don't get people on their phones and you don't get people talking and you can order a whiskey um you know they have alcohol there and great food and so definitely go and do that um go have a couple of whiskeys and watch a great movie uh there's this great place here in town called pinballs uh there's a couple of them uh there but they're byob stand-up arcades uh the one in north central austin was a few blocks from where i used to live and i used to go there all the time Thirteen thousand square feet of old stand-up arcade games, you know, some newer stuff, but stuff going back, you know, pinball machines going back 50, 60 years. Um, they have the world's first talking pinball machine that you can play um, that had a voice um, and uh, uh, games all through history. And you can, uh, uh, if you have a party there, you can bring in coolers. Otherwise, you just keep a cooler in your car. And every time your, your beer runs out, you run out and grab another beer. They've got standees that stand next to all the machines. So you can pop your beer in a koozie and and sit there and and beat x-men like you wanted to when you were a kid <laughs> uh so that place highly recommend pinballs um definitely go to fantastic fest when fantastic fest goes next year it's eight straight days of genre films uh uh that start playing at like 11 in the morning and the final one spools out at 2 a.m they have all sorts of events and and they're a lot of fun uh go get pizza at conan's pizza um it is called conan's pizza and it, you may instantly go, oh, like Conan the Barbarian. Yes, exactly like Conan the Barbarian. It is this place is straight out of the 80s. They have, you know, um, wood paneled walls and it's covered in Frazetta art. 
and they make amazing pizza. They they keep getting voted best pizza in Austin. Their their pizzas are awesome. They have the Savage, which is named after the Savage Conan, and it is it it is one of those things I just love to do. Like some nights when I'm feeling nostalgic for the eighties, I'll call up friends and be like, let's go grab some pizza and a couple pitchers of beer at Conan's. And you just get half a dozen friends sitting around drinking beer from pitchers surrounded by just amazing Frazetta art. And it is just exactly how I want to spend a Friday night. So I highly recommend doing that. Um, those are my big geek musts. Also, go you're you're a reader. Go buy some books and hang out in Book People. It is one of the biggest bookstores in the country, and it is staffed by people who love books uh, and can and make great recommendations. Uh, I was really I was uh, they, they for a while they had a shelf that was Cargill and Klein, which was both me and Ernie Klein's books next <laughs> to each other, uh, which which just tickled me because me and Ernie. For those of you that don't know, Ernie Klein wrote uh, uh, Ready Player One. Uh, and me and him came up together in Austin and we both were poets. Uh, the first time I met him, uh, was on stage at a slam poetry reading in 1998. Uh, so it, it's, it's tickled me that we both had careers that have gone up both as screenwriters and novelists and that our local bookstore will occasionally put our books together. And I think that's really neat, but those people love books and, uh, um, uh, really know their stuff. Uh, and it's always, they always, it's always a pleasure to do a reading at, at book people. Those people are just the best. So in terms of like geek Austin, those are all the musts. Like I highly recommend doing all of those things. Yeah. You know, we had been to book people, book people's amazing. We've just been there once or twice right before the quarantine, we went into quarantine. Um, so I definitely, you know, I'm looking forward to going back there. Um, it's funny when you were mentioning the, uh, the arcade, there was a place like that, uh, in Brooklyn, we used to go called Barcade and I'm thinking there was yep. this, this one time where, um, we just gone to meet a, an agent and, um, so we hadn't played anything. And then my, my, my girlfriend really wanted to play one of the games as we were on our way out the door. And I said, well, I only have $20 bills and I don't want $20 worth of quarters. And she's like, we can use them to do laundry. And I was like, oh yeah, that's a good point. All right. So I put my $20 bill in the thing and I get $20 worth of Barcade tokens and uh, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so I have bags of tokens around the house uh, that I cannot wait to use again. But, yeah, I, I uh, usually one of the things I do for my birthday is the Alamo Draft House kindly gives me a screen to show a movie on. And so I show a midnight movie uh, 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 the weekend before my birthday uh, and they let me pick something from the uh, uh, American Genre Film Archive, which they run. And so I pick pull some crazy crazy old film that a lot of I know a lot of people haven't seen and I show that at midnight on a Saturday night but beforehand we all get together at pinballs we rent out one of the rooms and we all sit around and have beers for two three hours and play video games together and uh, and then I get a big bag of tokens by the end and then forget to have brought last year's tokens <laughs> have just several bags of tokens that every once in a while I'm like you know what I'm gonna go spend some of these tokens and it's been it's been I've been wanting to do that so bad during the pandemic and I just haven't been able to do it uh, for obvious reasons, but, uh, yeah, you it, it's imagine barcade, but imagine if barcade were 13,000 square feet, like this, this place is not small. It is, it is gargantuan and I adore it. Yeah. And that sounds amazing. Yeah. I'll definitely check that out. Um, then the other thing I want to ask you about is, uh, in one of my recent interviews, I interviewed Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. And, oh, yeah. um, when I mentioned that I, I just moved to Austin, they said I should interview you. And I, I, I'd had your book on my like TBR pile for a long time. So I was like, all right, let me, let me do that. Um, but they mentioned that you're there, you were their, uh, dungeon master for D and D. 
I am. Yeah, they uh, they wanted to play with the beginning of the pandemic. They'd always wanted to play Dungeons and Dragons and never had. And they were like, well, Cargill plays. Let's uh, and they kind of reached out gently and said, hey, we're thinking about starting uh, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, getting into Dungeons and Dragons. Could you recommend what we should be doing? And so I sent them a list of, hey, yeah, here's how you start, yada, yada. And then about a week later, it just was one of those things that hit me. It's like maybe they were low key asking their <laughs> dungeon master. And so I, you know, we, uh, uh, were on a, uh, uh, we have a, we have a weekly, um, uh, I have a, I have a tradition here at my place I call porch beers. And whenever there's a film festival, I invite other filmmakers out to, uh, you know, my, my back patio and to drink beers on the porch and just talk. And, uh, uh, Aaron and Justin have been a couple times and they wanted to start a digital porch beers for, um, uh, for the pandemic and invited a bunch of horror filmmakers. And, uh, um, and so we were, we get together once a week and, and, you know, talk shop or talk what's going on in life. And it's really great because somebody will be having a problem and being like, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know how to deal with the studio or I don't know how to deal with this problem in a script or, you know, what's going on in this movie. Uh, and then somebody will be like, Oh, I've done that. I know how to, you know, here, let me walk you through this. Let me, oh, I've dealt with that exec before. Let me tell you what they're doing and, and how they're being passive aggressive to you and how to solve that because I had to solve a similar problem, you know, and it's stuff like that. And Aaron and Justin had started it up. And the one week I was on, I was like, hey, when you reached out a couple of weeks ago, were you low key asking me? And they're like, you're low key asking me to be our dungeon master. So I was like, well, you know what? I haven't run a campaign in a couple of years. I would love to. And it's been the high point of every week like uh um they are so much fun to dungeon master for uh and it's such a great group um and uh uh and it's yeah it's it's them it's adam Egypt mortimer who's another director and it's all of our significant others my wife plays uh uh and aaron and justin's girlfriends play and and it's so much fun uh, we're running through cursive strahd at the moment and uh, melting their brain because they've most of them have never played Dungeons and Dragons before. So they're just like, this is what Dungeons and Dragons is like. This is amazing. And so, yeah, we we literally play every week without fail. Um, it is the first group I've had in history that, you know, uh, it's every week we're playing. Uh, and it's it's been great fun. Well, and to start them off with Ravenloft, that's pretty, pretty hardcore, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're horror, they're all horror filmmakers. So it's like, why not run them? Like they will get the horror of this game and they certainly do. It's, it's amazing. It's entirely, you know, it's a whole group of storytellers. And, uh, and so the thing with storytellers is they pick up on every clue and they literally piece it all together and they're talking and it like, there's one point, uh, when, when they're in Argon Vostolt and they're like, wait, wait, we need to, we need to find this skull. I'll bet you the skull is a castle Ravenloft. Do we have to pull a heist to go get a <laughs> skull to put these spirits at rest? I think that's what we have to do. That's amazing. And I'm just sitting here watching them put all the pieces together, not having to railroad them at all. And they're like, let's pull a heist at Ravenloft. And, uh, and I'm just like, this is amazing. Like every small clue they get and they immediately keep a track of a to do list or to be killed list based upon the things they figure out. And I've never had a campaign where every single thread that gets offered to them gets figured out and delighted in. And it's wonderful. So I, I adore this group so much. I hope I hope we're playing Dungeons and Dragons together for years to come. So what sort of um, backgrounds playing Dungeons and Dragons did you have? Had you had you been playing for 20 years or something? 
35. Um, uh, I played my first, I played first, uh, my first Dungeons and Dragons game when I was 10 years old, Redbox, uh, in the mid eighties. I had a friend, uh, uh, who was playing and we played and my parents were very much against. The thing is, is that when I was eight years old, the 700 club did its big thing about Dungeons and Dragons and how it's of the devil and how it's how the devil gets your kids and it's awful. And I wasn't allowed to watch the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon anymore. And all of a sudden this was my act of rebellion. Uh, it is the nerdiest act of rebellion in the history of teenage acts of rebellion. Uh, but I, uh, I started playing D and D heavily. In fact, I built false bottoms on all my comic boxes <laughs> to store all my D and D books that I would get secondhand from friends. And so, um, uh, so I had, I was playing Dungeons and Dragons so much, so much so that I was, uh, often playing, um, uh, the original Dungeon Master's Guide had a random dungeon generator in it, and I would play solo playing through the random dungeon generator, and I would have these characters and play through until I died and then start from scratch again and, you know, play, you know, a Gygax-style dungeon crawl um, with these characters um, and uh, and just try to survive, and, and I would do that after my parents had gone to sleep. So I played... Every iteration of Dungeons and Dragons, I was for a short period of time in NPR's Rolodex as a resident Dungeons and Dragons expert. So I've actually appeared twice on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me oh, wow. as a Dungeons and Dragons expert. <laughs> um, I, uh, um, I, I, I was the first person in the world to review fourth edition. I was playing it as a, um, uh, as a play tester and loved it so much that I reached out and said, Hey, can I write this up for any cool news? Uh, and so I reviewed that. And so then that was where I got put on everybody's radar. Like, Hey, this guy got into Dungeons and Dragons before anyone uh, uh, else got to see it. How did he do that? And so, uh, and I uh, would, uh, I got to know several of the writers, uh, especially during third edition and would play test for them. That's how I got to play test fourth edition was they would run their stuff by me and I would break it for them because I was one of those, I'm one of those guys who's, who played so much that I learned all of the books and knew how to break stuff and would go, Oh yeah, this feat is really cool. And I see what you're doing, but if you combine it with this, feet and this feet this creates a broken character so you're going to want to put in a caveat that this doesn't work this way uh, otherwise it will be abused to oblivion and uh and by the end of third edition i was playing 3.5 i was playing such twinked out crazy characters that i was just like i need a new edition now because i i just i have to tie my hands <laughs> in order to make a character now and that's not fun you know you want the whole goal of dungeons and dragons you want to feel powerful you want to feel you know good at what you do you want to do the best version that you can and i and it just there was so many materials and i was just so familiar with it that i was not able to have fun with it anymore cuz i was it was just i had broken it and so I really loved fourth edition and played fourth edition well into fifth edition. And so now I'm playing fifth edition with all, all these friends. I'm really, I played my first fifth edition game like two and a half years ago. And I was like, Oh, this is cool. This is very different, but I see the benefits of fifth edition and why fifth edition is awesome and have been playing that, uh, very regularly during the pandemic. I actually have three games going right now oh, wow. where I'm a player, one where I'm a player, one that the one you mentioned that I'm the DM, and then I DM one for my wife that we do here as like, hey, we're we're going on a walk or we're hanging out in the pool or we have nothing to do tonight. It's like, oh, let's pick up where we left off, and uh, and so yeah, it's pandemic time has been lots of Dungeons and Dragons time. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I mean, you know, I had a very I had a very similar experience. You know, I grew up in the as a kid in the 80s and 90s, and you know, there was the whole satanic panic, and they wouldn't let us play D and D in school and all that kind of stuff. So. That definitely had a big impact on me in terms of just, you know, really 
uh, you know, detesting uh, moral panics and, and all that kind of hysteria and all that kind of stuff. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. It, it really, it, it, having been involved in that, it's one of those things that it's very, it was very eye opening to just how manipulative certain sections of religions can be and how they can uh, target innocent people and make their lives awful be it for the purpose of, uh, uh, of extending their own power, you know, their own power base. And so it's, uh, it's definitely something, yeah. Watching the satanic panic definitely armored me against other panics uh, of the future where I was able to go, wait a second, <laughs> yeah. I've seen this before. I've been told that Dungeons and Dragons would make me commune with devils, uh, with the devil and would drive me to suicide. And then I found out, no, actually, it's all about killing devils and being the good guys. Like it's 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 very easy to create very Christian driven campaigns so much. So like in third edition, I remember there's a really great um because uh, uh, because of the way they did the rules in in third edition, you could make all sorts of third party products for for it. You could do that again now, but um, uh, there was a there was a famously interesting and somewhat popular biblical variant of three point five, um, where you used the Dungeons and Dragons rules but fought the demons of hell and you know were the good guys and you know was mostly driven by clerics and paladins, but was really kind of neat. Uh, set in like the old school biblical Mesopotamia, you know, it's adventures in biblical times. Because when you get to what was originally considered to be canon um, stuff, there's some crazy stories. Uh, you know, I deal with this in Queen of the Dark Things, um, where you know um, Solomon had a ring that allowed him to command demons, and so he had 72 demons that he was in command of, and forced them to build his original temple. And his original temple was built by demons that were under his enslavement. And it's like that used to be considered canon Christianity. Like there's lots of fun, bonkers fantasy stuff in there. And that's the type of stuff that this played around with for fantasy adventures. And I thought that was neat. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So this has been a great conversation. Um, unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time, but we'll have to have you back sometime because it's obvious that your geekiness cannot be contained to one episode. <laughs> uh, I would, I'd love to come back. You should, you should check out uh, Sea of Rust. I'm really proud of that book. Yeah, yeah. No, it sounds cool. It's more of a sort of um, like robots. I don't know if it's steampunk exactly, but sort of robot post-apocalyptic kind of thing. Post-apocalyptic uh, uh, robot uh, uh, Western is what it is. It's essentially it's it's robots have wiped us out and uh, uh, and the uh, they are all that's left and now they're fighting each other. And so uh, I, I really adore that book. Yeah, no, it sounds super cool. So do you have any just uh, any final thoughts or any other projects you want to let people know about? Well, um, if you enjoy We Are Where the Nightmares Go, if you've enjoyed my other stuff, uh, I have a new book coming out next May uh, called Day Zero, which is set in – it's essentially a prequel to Sea of Rust. It's set in the Sea of Rust universe, um, and uh, I'm really, really proud of that one, uh, and that, that's coming out soon. And uh, me and Scott are going to shoot a Joe Hill movie in next February for Blumhouse, and I'm very excited about that, and we'll have announcements about that coming soon. Uh, but yeah. Well, yeah, that's great. Yeah, definitely looking forward to all that. And yeah, definitely we'll talk to you again sometime. But so we've been speaking with C. Robert Cargill about his book, We Are Where the Nightmares Go, and other stories. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, man. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to C. Robert Cargill for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, Please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, 
You can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.